Good morning. Glad to be coming to you from Deep Springs Baptist Church here in Peachland, North Carolina. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look at one of the great missionary passages of the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to tell you a, a quick story. It was overheard. There was, there was two old men talking, and one old man said to the, to the other, he said, you know, I learned my lesson about talking back to my wife. And the other man said, oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, I learned a long time ago not to talk back to my wife. He said, well, what happened? He said, well, one time my wife said something to me I really didn't like, and I just gave her what for. I just gave her a real piece of my mind, and I raked her over the coals. He said, I didn't even see her for two whole weeks after that. He said, really, two whole weeks? He said, yeah, and after two weeks, I started being able to see again out of my left eye. You can thank my brother Hal Austin for that joke. He sent me some funnies this morning. Well, we're going to look in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to just take a little uh, a commentary, a, I don't want to say a play-by-play, -play, a verse-by-verse. We're going to go through this chapter, and I think you'll find it very rewarding. It is such a, it's one of my favorite New Testament passages. Of course, I love it all. They're all my favorite, but uh, it's just really great. And uh, if you don't believe in missions, you've never read Acts chapter 8. So let's begin in verse 1. It says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. It's talking about Stephen. You have to read chapter 7 to understand. Stephen and, uh, and Philip were among the seven. Now some say they were deacons. I'm not really sure one way or the other. But they were, they were seven men who were designated to take care of some of the work that the apostles uh, could not be burdened with. The apostles needed to dedicate, devote themselves to the word of God and prayer. And so these seven men who were filled with the Holy Spirit were chosen to, as the King James says, to serve tables. They were doing the daily ministration to the, to the Hellenistic Jewish women. <clears throat> and so uh, Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts had preached a fantastic sermon. I hope to take a look at it sometime. But it was an outstanding sermon, mightily used by God. But at the end of his sermon, he was, he was killed. He was martyred. And so that's where we pick up here in verse 1. It says, Saul, who we now know to be the greatest missionary of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, says, Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So let's make, take a moment and comment, comment on this. First of, first of all, we see that Stephen's death triggered a great persecution against the Jewish church uh, at Jerusalem. There was great persecution. Now, it's interesting to me that in Acts 1 and 8, and I'm going to turn there really quick, Jesus said these words just prior to the day of Pentecost. He said, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. So Acts 1 and 8 predicts that the gospel would go not just into Jerusalem, but into the entire world. <clears throat> and until chapter 8, the gospel has remained mostly in the Jerusalem region. But it's interesting to me that Acts 1-8 begins to be fulfilled in Acts 8-1. Now the gospel is going into Samaria. And uh, this is going to be really significant. We'll talk about this 
in greater detail in just a moment. It says that the apostles remained behind. Now, we ought not read anything negative into this. Uh, it's possible that they remained behind to comfort the, the, the other churches that were being persecuted in Jerusalem. We shouldn't view this as them cowering in fear by any means. If anything, it was a, a, an act of bravery for them to stay behind. But it says they were scattered abroad. And it says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 2. You know, it's, per it's perfectly appropriate when someone dies for us to mourn for them. Now, we don't sorrow uh, to mourn over them. We're not sorry for them. If they die in the Lord, they are truly in a much better place. But we sorrow for ourselves because of the void that we feel in our lives. You know, Christians sorrow just like unbelievers do. But Paul says that we are not like the unbelievers because we sorrow, but we sorrow not without hope. We sorrow in hope. We're sad that we've lost our loved one, but we have hope because we know one day we will see them again if they know the Lord and we do as well. And so they lamented him. It says in verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Now this phrase, making havoc of the church, is one word in the Greek, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it's only used one time in the New Testament. And so we kind of have to look outside of the Scripture to see how it's used in, uh, in antiquity. And the word was used to describe like an animal tearing things in pieces. And when Jesus confronted Saul on the Damascus Road, he said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. He talks to him like a wild beast. And so Saul was persecuting the church. We know from other places in the New Testament that Saul was violent. He was persecuted the church. He would force people to blaspheme uh, to try to get them to recant their faith in Jesus. Now, Saul is making havoc of the church, and it says in verse 4, Therefore, in other words, there's conjunction here, because of the persecution, because of Saul, uh, his persecution, it says that they that were scattered abroad, just like in verse 1 we see scattered abroad, the Greek word is diaspero, diaspero, and it means to sow seed. It means to scatter seed. You may have heard this expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, the devil thought he was going to wipe out the church, but instead the gospel begins to expand. If I could draw a parallel to our, to our own experience here in 2020, many of our churches have had to close their doors for a period of time. But guess what? Even though the doors have been closed, the gospel has still been going forward. And I believe we've reached even more people than we would have in a normal time. You see, God's kingdom is all about opportunity. God's Holy Spirit will make the, the most out of a bad situation. It says they were scattered abroad, and they went everywhere preaching the word. Verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. This is very significant. I don't think we fully appreciate the rift that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans in the intertestamental period and even in the early part of church history. I don't think we can really appreciate how wide the gap or how, how deep the rift was between the Jews and the Samaritans. But how many of you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is bigger than any racial prejudice? You know, the only thing that can really overcome racism and overcome ethnic divide between people and hatred is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we need to be praying for in our day. Philip went down to Samaria, and the scripture says he preached Christ unto them. 
He's not preaching his denomination. He's not preaching about his organization. He's preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. People, you know, giving your testimony is great. And, and I believe it's a powerful tool. But the people need to hear about Christ. They need to hear about Jesus. It says in verse 6, The people with one accord gave heed unto those things that Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. The miracles, the signs, and the wonders. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, Simeon is, is, is the word for signs or miracles. And the, the, uh, the miracles they did, they were validating the message. You know, the scripture says, I think it's in Mark 16, that these signs will follow them that believe. We, sometimes we get it backwards. Sometimes we find believers following signs. Believers are not to follow signs, but signs follow believers. And the signs always are for one purpose. They are to authenticate the message of Jesus Christ. They are not a means to an end. They're not an end to the end of themselves. And we'll see why this is important here again in just a moment. It says in verse 7, For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. You know, uh, one of the evidences that the gospel was going forward and, and the power of God was manifested through Stephen is that people were being delivered from demons. Uh, people sometimes ask, well, why do we not see demon possession today like we saw uh, in, in old days? Or why do we hear more about it in, uh, in other regions of the world? You hear more about demonic manifestations. I want to read something to you, uh, if you'll indulge me for just a moment. I want to read something to you. It's a quote by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have heard of him. Here's a quote by uh, for, uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, now, John MacArthur says, Such demon-indwelt people exist in our own day, although they may not be commonly manifest in Western cu culture as in third world cultures. As C.S. Lewis notes, Satan and his demons adapt themselves to whatever worldview prevails in a given society. They are equally at home with Western materialists and third world magicians. Let me say that again. Demons are equally at home with Western materialists and third world magicians. So I believe that we have demon-possessed people in places of power, even in our own country. We have politicians. And even though they're not foaming at the mouth and writhing on the floor, they are very much agents and tools of the devil doing his bidding. But the gospel of Jesus Christ drives them out. Verse 8, it says, And there was great joy in the city. If there has ever been a time, beloved, when we need to, uh, to be strong in the joy of the Lord, it is now the joy of the Lord is our strength and song. You can rejoice in God regardless of your circumstances. And in fact, you have to in order to live Above the fray, you, you need to rejoice in God. Luke loves to write about joy. We, write, we read about joy all throughout the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. And truly, 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 a person that has experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ will have joy deep down in their heart. Verse 9 says, but there was a certain man. Isn't that the case? <laughs> Isn't there always a guy? Or a woman there's always a certain man wherever God is planting wheat the devil is at work sowing tares anytime there's a move of God Satan will try to infiltrate I'm reminded of, uh, of Acts chapter 5 you know Barnabas had given a great offering to the church but then chapter 5 opens up and it says and there was a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira notice what Simon says in verse 9 Excuse me, in verse 9 it says, He before time in the same city he used sorcery, and he bewitched the people of Samaria. 
giving out that himself was some great one. You want to know if somebody's full of God or full of the devil? Do they speak of God or do they speak of self? Verse 10 says, To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Again, who's being exalted here? God, Jesus Christ, or the person? And it says, To him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they, the people, verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So uh, Simon is beginning to lose his influence now. He's, he's had his sorcery and his signs and wonders, but now Philip is preaching Christ and demons are being driven out and people's bodies are being healed. Verse 13, it says, Then Simon himself believed also. And, he, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. All right, I want to bring out an important, important point here. It says that Simon believed, that he was baptized, and that he continued with Philip. By all outward appearances, he seems to be a great church member. He, he should be a leader in the church of Samaria, right? Not so fast. We're going to learn that his, his profession of faith was hollow. Now, last week, if you heard the message, I preached an very important message from Matthew chapter 7. And it says, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he that does the will of the Father. Many will say to God on that day, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did many, many wonderful works in your name. And then he will say, Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. This is exactly the kind of convert that Simon is. He's a false convert. And his words will, will, will bear this out. Notice it says he was beholding, the end of verse 13, the miracles and the signs. He was all caught up in the signs and the wonders. And, and we'll, we'll soon see the reason he was so enamored with that is because he wanted that for himself. He had not had a real change. He had not truly repented. You see, it's not enough to be simply believe in God and be baptized. You know what the book of James says? It says, even the devils believe. He said, you believe there's one God? So do the devils. They believe, and they fear and tremble. But faith without works is dead. So, verse 14, word gets back to the Jerusalem church. I love this. It says, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. All right, what's this all about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's, let's talk about this for just a moment. Now, first of all, we see that word gets back to Jerusalem, and now they have dispatched Peter and John to come and pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, they were already saved, these Samaritan believers. They, they believed, uh, and they had received the Word of God. And many of them believed, and they were baptized. They were already saved here. So, so what's going on here? Why did the apostles need to come pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit? Now, it's important to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. And so some things don't fit into the normal pattern. And so we need to, we need to look at some things here. 
If you remember, I mentioned at the outset of this broadcast that there was a deep rift between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay, Around 732 B.C., uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided. There was the ten tribes in the north, and then there were the two in the south, Benjamin and Judah, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And, uh, and so the ten tribes of, uh, of the north, the northern kingdom, Omri, who was one of the kings uh, of the northern kingdom, he built Samaria, and Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, in 732 B.C., the Assyrians came and captured uh, the northern kingdom. They, they, they came and attacked the northern kingdom. And what they did is they deported a lot of the Jewish people. They were left. They were taken away captive. But they did something else. They imported people from other nations, Gentile nations, pagan nations, to live amongst the people in Samaria. And so uh, they were largely viewed as half-breeds or an impure race because they were, they were pagans intermarried with, uh, with the, Jewish, the, from the Jews from the northern kingdom. And there was a lot of hostility between them. In the intertestamental period, uh, and even in Jesus' day and the, day, the early church, we know that uh, you can read about it in Ezra chapter 4, that even when the decree was given to rebuild the temple, the second temple, uh, the Samaritans came to Zerubbabel, and they said, hey, we'll, we'd like to help you rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel, you know, he was from the southern kingdom. He said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and so there was a lot of hostility that existed between them. There was a deep, deep sense of, of hatred between the two of these groups. Uh, you remember Jesus when he, he ministered to the woman at the well and the, the disciples were kind of astonished, not just that he was talking to a woman, but that he was talking to a Samaritan and she was taken aback. You know, she said the Jews and the Samaritans, they don't have any dealings with each other. We worship uh, on this mountain and you worship your way. And Jesus said, the time is coming and now is that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God's seeking such to worship him. So there was a deep divide between them. Something else I want to bring out. Now Luke records this in Luke chapter 9. There's a funny story. Now remember this is uh, Peter and John. Now James and John, there's a funny story that Luke tells about them in Luke chapter 9. Jesus was going uh, to go through Samaria, but the scripture says that the Samaritans, they perceived that Jesus, is, he was, his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so they did not give Jesus a warm reception. And you know what John asked Jesus? He said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume the Samaritans? John went nuclear on them. Uh, John, John and James, they were called the sons of thunder. I guarantee you they didn't get that handled by accident. They were, they were probably some tough characters. And I think it's interesting that the same man who before was wanting to call down fire down from heaven and consume the people, is now praying for the fire of God to come down in the form of the Holy Ghost. Aren't you glad God gives you a second chance? God gives you a chance to make things right. Now it says that they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. All right. It says in verse 16, he had fallen upon none of them. Words are important. Notice it says he had not fallen upon them. You know the difference between with and in and upon? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said he's with you. That's in conviction. The Holy Spirit is in you. That's conversion. The Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's for service. Anytime you see this phrase, the Spirit of God came upon someone, it was not salvation. It was for service. It was, it's for witnessing. It's for empowerment. Spirit of God. Think of water, the analogy of water. 
when I drink water, it's going in me. But when I get in the shower, you know, unless I'm there with my mouth open, I don't, I'm not ingesting the water. The water's upon me. It's, it's, it's uh, fulfilling a different purpose. And the reason, I believe, and most commentators agree, that the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in this fashion that He came upon them was so that there would not be two different churches. Remember, the rift was wide between the Jews and the Samaritans. If, if they had been allowed to be baptized, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, just as the Jerusalem church did, they probably would have been two separate churches. There would have been a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. But God, in His providence, united the two churches, united the two people groups, by sending Peter and John to pray for the Samaritans. Oh, the wisdom and the providence of God. He's showing the mystery of Christ, that there would not be two different bodies, but one man in Christ, Jew and Gentile, both in one body. Hallelujah. And they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now, again, so that we don't, we're not careful to build a doctrine out of one verse, we know that in Acts chapter 10, that when Peter is preaching to, the, to Cornelius' household, that the Holy Spirit falls on them, but there was no laying on of hands. So God can do things however He wants to do them, okay? So uh, enough about that now. But in verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. Notice he's observing the signs. Now what is it that he saw? Well, the text doesn't explicitly say. We might safely infer that what he saw was something similar to what they saw on the day of Pentecost. Perhaps there were tongues or prophecy, uh, something of that nature. The scripture is silent on it, so I will be too. But we know that was certainly the case in Acts 10 with Cornelius. But when Simon saw the signs, he was provoked. And he says in verse 19, Give me this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. You see, he didn't care about conversion. He, wasn't care, he didn't care about interchange. All he wanted was power. Now remember, he's a magician. A lot of the magicians of that day, they would try to trade secrets with one another. They would pay so that the magicians would teach them uh, their tricks, as it were. And, and so in his mind, he thinks he can bribe or he can pay Peter and John to tell him what the secret is. Because his heart is not right with God. Uh, you can look up, you can do some research. He is known as Simon Magus. He is a, very much a, a, a historical figure. Even people that don't believe in God will, will testify of this guy named Simon Magus. And it's where we get our word simony from. And that word simony means to to try to purchase ecclesiastical power, to use money to gain uh, influence in the church. And church history has been replete with people who try to do that very thing. And Peter says, Peter has discernment. Notice what Peter says in verse 20. He says, your money perish with you. Now, J.B. Phillips, he translates from the Greek, and he says the Greek is much more emphatic. And what he says, now I'm not a Greek scholar, but J.B. Phillips said that in the Greek it actually reads, to hell with you and your money. That's how serious this was. He says, because you have thought the gift of God may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, verse 21, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. He says, repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. You see, he's not had true, genuine repentance. He believed and was baptized, but he just... He was caught up in the signs. He wasn't truly born again. And he says, you need to repent. 
He says, I perceive, verse 23, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Does this sound like a Christian to you? Does this sound like a real convert? Absolutely not. Now, notice what his, his response in verse 24 is also very telling. Notice Simon does not pray to God himself, but he says, pray to the Lord for me that none of those things which you have spoken come upon me. Notice he's not concerned about his inner life. He's not concerned about change. He's only worried about the consequences. He's kind of like Cain when God confronted Cain after he had killed his brother. And, and God, God punished him. He chastised him. You know what Cain said? He wasn't sorry that he killed his brother. He said, oh, my punishment is more than I can bear. You see, those who are sorrowful, Paul says godly sorrow leads to repentance. The sorrow of the world works death. And, and Simon is exhibiting worldly sorrow. Judas was sorry for what he had done, but he died in his sin. Peter denied the Lord, but he was truly repentant for what he had done, denying the Lord. Verse 25, it says, They, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Wow. Isn't this amazing? This persecution of the church scattered the seed. And now James, excuse me, John and Peter and the apostles, you know, whereas they had kind of been preaching primarily in their home base of Jerusalem, now they're preaching in Samaria. And there has been true racial healing. There has been true ethnic healing. You know, there's a unity that only the Spirit of God can provide. You cannot manufacture it on your own. You cannot do it. Oh, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you just amazed at what happens when we obey the Great Commission and we go and do what Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm getting excited just thinking about it. You, I believe that every child of God ought to have a heart for missions. I believe that they ought to because that is the heart of God. Acts 1 and 8 says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to go not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and into the uttermost parts of the world. Now, I believe there, there are two people recorded in Acts chapter 8, and I believe Luke is intentional with this. There are two baptisms recorded in, in uh, Acts chapter 8. One is Simon Magus, and the other is a true convert. We know him simply as the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 26, it says, And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, it's interesting that Luke mentions this, that it's a desert place. He doesn't have to give that detail. But it's, it's interesting to me that Philip is having a tremendous revival in Samaria, and yet God calls him to the desert to minister to one man. God's not always in the big crowd. Sometimes he'll call you to do something seemingly small, which is really a big thing. And it says, He arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, just a quick word here. This, this man, he's a eunuch, and as such, as outlined in the book of Deuteronomy, he would not be able to enter into the, the temple of God because... But he could uh, be a God-fearing uh, God Gentile. Now, he's a man of Ethiopia. Now, this is not modern-day Ethiopia. From what I understand, it was, uh, it was called Nubia then. It's uh, still part of Africa. 
and he was under authority of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, Candace is not a proper name. Candace is a title, just like Pharaoh is a title or, or Herod or whatever. Pharaoh is a title, and so is Candace. Now, you might say, well, why is, the, uh, why is there a woman uh, in authority here? Well, the Africans here, they believed that their kings were sun gods, and they, they believed that they were, uh, they were too noble to, to burden themselves with the day-to-day affairs of governing society. And so they had queen mothers. And so Candace was a queen mother, and that's a, that's a title for her. And he is obviously some kind of a, a high-ranking financial officer or treasurer for her. And apparently he is a God-fearing Gentile because it says he had come to Jerusalem to worship. But he, he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, but he leaves empty. You know, that's what religion will always do. It'll leave you empty. But it says he was returning and sitting in his chariot, he read Isaiah the prophet, verse 28. Verse 29, then the Spirit said uh, unto Philip, Go near and join yourself to this chariot. Now the angel of the Lord first told him to go to the desert place. Now the Spirit of God is speaking to him. And it says in verse 30, I love this, it says, And Philip ran thither to him. He didn't walk, he ran. And he heard him read the prophet Isaiah. It was common for people to read out loud in those days. And I think there's some benefit in us doing that too, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I like what Philip says to him. He says, do you understand what you're reading? I, consider the boldness of Philip here. I mean, this is an important man here. And Philip just comes up to him and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And look at the humility of the, of the eunuch in verse 31. He says, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, verse 32. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. He's reading from Isaiah 53. And this is a, a very misunderstood passage of Scripture by the Jewish people, you know, because they didn't understand the Messiah, the suffering Messiah. And so the eunuch, is con he's confused. Is Isaiah talking about himself or about someone else? And it says in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Glory to God. You know what? Testimonies are great. But we need to preach Jesus. Every sermon that we preach, every Bible story that we teach, it ought to somehow, some way, come back to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes, He said, You search the Scriptures, and in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. From Genesis to Revelation, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it says, As they went on their way, there came into, they came into a certain water. Well, I thought they were in the desert. They are. <laughs> this whole thing just, just smells of the sovereignty of God. First of all, there's a setup here. Philip has been divinely commissioned to go to the desert place. He's sent the man. He's got the man in the right place at the right time. And oh, by the way, there just happens to be a body of water. You think there's an accident? No. They came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I love this. He's ready to do it right now. There's no delay. Verse 37, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, I'm reading out of the King James. Some of you may have a footnote in your Bible that's going to say something to this effect. 
that verse 37 does not appear in some of the oldest manuscripts. Guess what? I'm not bent out of shape by that at all because what verse 37 says is there's nothing unbiblical at all, and this is very much consistent with, with what anyone would have practiced in that day. They were not in the habit of baptizing people who did not make a sincere profession of faith. And, and that's, that should be an indictment on us. Sometimes I think we're too quick to baptize. And I'm speaking to myself here too. H has the person really demonstrated true repentance and confession of Jesus? And he said, I believe. Verse 38, he said, he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, there's pretty strong evidence right here that this is baptism by immersion. I'm not going to get into all that today. But I believe, the Greek word is baptizo. I believe that the Bible teaches water baptism by immersion. They both come up out of the water. Uh, Philip didn't sprinkle him. He didn't, he didn't just sprinkle him. They both went into the water and, they, and he baptized him. And it says, when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip. How cool is that? Now again, this is why we have to be careful in the book of Acts. Uh, not to, to form, base all of our doctrine from the book of Acts. Otherwise, uh, we would see people baptizing folks and then being transported into another town. But ha have you ever seen that? I haven't. I've never experienced that. That would probably scare me to death if it did. But the Spirit of God called away Philip, much the way the Spirit of God called away Elijah in first, uh, Second Kings. And it says that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went his way rejoicing. Here again, here again, Luke is emphasizing the joy that comes from true salvation. Contrast Simon Magus with the eunuch. Simon Magus, Simon the sorcerer, he's what? He's in the gall of bitterness. He's bitter. He's full of iniquity. But the eunuch has experienced true repentance. And as a result, he has true joy. It says in verse 40, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Uh, later, we would find out that Philip preached his way home in Caesarea. Twenty years later, we find in the book of Acts that Philip is there, and now he's got a title. I want you to see something in Scripture. In, in Acts 6, Philip is one of the seven. He's chosen to serve tables. He's serving, he's doing the work of a deacon. And in, and in chapter 8, we see that Philip is doing a mighty revival. He, mighty signs and wonders are being done. Some people say, well, only the apostles did miracles. No. Here we see a deacon uh, doing miracles. We see that God, and they were Holy Spirit-filled people. It's not just pastors who God uses in a mighty way. It's deacons. And, and furthermore, it's anybody who will yield to the Spirit of God. God will use you. But here's the thing. Are you willing to be faithful in the small things? Philip was faithful to serve tables. Then God used him in a mighty way in Samaria. Then he was obedient to go down to Gaza and to witness to this one Ethiopian. And now the gospel goes back to Africa. Glory to God. The gospel is not just in Samaria. Now the gospel is going to Africa. It's being scattered abroad. The sea is being scattered. And in Acts, I think it's 21, Philip has a title. 20 years later, you know what they call him? They call him Philip the deacon? Nope. They call him Philip the evangelist. He's the only one in the Bible that has that, that title as far as I know. Be faithful in the few things and God will use you for greater things. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So, in summary, and at the, the chapter begins this way, Saul's persecuting the church. But God, Warren Wiersbe says this, uh, that in Acts 8.1, that the Jerusalem salt has left the salt shaker. And now Philip begins, he's really the, one of the first missionaries, even before Paul. Philip begins the work of missions, and he goes to Samaria, and God works a mighty work there. God is, 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 is confirming the word with signs following. And, and even there's this guy named Simon, and he's a, he's a false convert. He makes a profession of faith. He's even baptized, but he's not truly saved. And Peter discerns this. And God in his providence withholds the Holy Spirit from coming upon the Samaritan believers. And in doing so, he allows Peter and John to come pray and there is unity between the Jerusalem church and the Samaritan church. The rift has been healed. God has brought to true healing and true unity. And then we see a tr the true conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, he was a God-fearing man. He had gone to, to the feast, no doubt, to, to read about God. He's reading the scriptures. And he's, he's obeying the light that he has. And God gives him even more light. And God will do the same thing for you and for, uh, and for me. Now, Peter discerned that Simon Magnus... Magus was not a true convert. I don't know if, if the other people would have re realized that or not. You know, without Peter's, without Peter's discernment, Simon may have become a leader in the Samaritan church. But Peter discerned. Later, Peter would write these words. He would say, give every diligence to make your, give, give to make your election and your calling sure. One of the most important things you can ever make sure is your election and your calling. Have, have I truly been born again? You say, well, I've been baptized. That's not what I asked you. You say, well, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus lived. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you, have you been born again? Has there been repentance? Has there been a change of heart, a change of mind that results in a change of action? Have old things passed away? If not, today is your day. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And I'm going I'm to pray with you. If you've never truly been born again, you can repent. And ask Jesus to be your Savior. You may be a believer here today. And you may, you may wonder, uh, is it important for me to share my faith? Absolutely. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature is not a suggestion. It's a command. You and I are commanded to share our faith. And I hope this has inspired you. You know, it takes boldness to, sh to share your faith. It took courage for, Phil for Philip to go into Samaria. It took courage for Philip to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch. But look how God blessed his efforts. And God will bless your missionary efforts too when you go not only in Jerusalem but to Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. So Christian, if you have not shared your faith, if you're not sharing your faith, I, I hope I've stirred you into action today. Let's pray. Lord, on behalf of those who have never received you as Lord and Savior, who may have been baptized but have never truly been born again I'm going to pray a prayer to you God and I'm going to ask them to agree with me Heavenly Father I repent of my sins I ask you to change me from the inside out I don't want, just want religion I want to be saved I want to be born again I confess to you that I'm a sinner save my soul deliver me from the power of sin I believe Jesus is the Son of God I believe with all my heart come into my heart come into my life I receive you as my Savior. Save me. And I pray for those today who are not sharing their faith, those who have grown cold in their missionary endeavors. God, I pray that you would, 
would, would breathe on each Christian and stoke those coals that they might become a burning flame, that they might share their faith for Jesus Christ, not just in their own little circle, but throughout the whole world. And God, we thank you for that privilege. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, things are changing in our world, and we hope very soon to be able to gather again. But we're going to continue to do our online messages even after that. At least that is our plan. So keep watching the devotions. We're doing the Olivet Discourse on Wednesday night. We're talking about the end times. You need to know what's going to happen. Uh, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you need to be knowledgeable about these things because what Jesus predicted will come to pass. So until next time, I'll see you. God bless.